Last week, we started to walk through the very end of chapter 52 through the end of chapter 53, uh, which I mentioned is probably the most famous passage in all of the prophecy of Isaiah. It's one of the most famous passages in the Bible. And probably of all of the messianic prophecies that we have in the Old Testament is one that probably most in most clearly and in a very detailed way uh, and as an extended prophecy, a rather lengthy prophecy lays out for us what the ministry of Jesus would be for us. And, and really, last week we start, started to see that the prophecy of Isaiah 52 and 53 really kind of follows the trajectory of the incarnational life of Jesus Christ. Because it starts with him glorified. It starts with his exaltation. And then it moves into his humiliation and his um, being rejected by people, being derided, uh, persecuted by people, ultimately rejected and suffering. And then at the end, we see him exalted again. It very, very closely mirrors the, the pattern that we see in the incarnation of and then exaltation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Uh, last week, we got through about half of the outline of the lesson. And I just wanted to briefly, don't want to reteach it, but just briefly remind us of some of the things that we talked about last week. We started out by talking about who is this passage talking about? And we entertained some different possibilities based on different views of this passage. And uh, we settled on, I think, very clearly uh, as the New Testament affirms in many places that this passage is fulfilled in none other than Jesus of Nazareth. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. None of these other explanations can fully account for what we read in Isaiah 53. Uh, Did Isaiah suffer for the Lord as a prophet? Surely he did. I mean, Isaiah went through some difficult times, but nothing of his life can level up to what we read in Isaiah 53. Um, Israel is referred to as the servant of the Lord at times in Isaiah, but there are also times where it seems that the the servant of the Lord is clearly not a nation, a group of people, but it's focusing on one individual. And so that moves us then to the Messiah. And we see many, many references to this passage in the New Testament. And, And so this of probably of all of the Christological passages of the Old Testament, this one is probably in least doubt as to who it refers to. This is clearly Jesus Christ fulfilled in him. And then we started walking through the passage beginning in chapter 52, verse 13, and looking at the servant's wisdom, that he would be uh, endued with wisdom from on high, that when he would speak, he would have, uh, he would speak the words of God because he is the word of God. And we talked about his exalted status from which he came then through his humiliation and to which he would return to an exalted, lifted up status. We talked about his appearance and just the fact that that really there's nothing really great or fantastic about his outward appearance that would draw us to him. We talked about his relationship to the nations that the Messiah, the servant of God, would come to do a work for the people of God. And that people of God, yes, has its focus on the Israelite people. That's 
the context in which Isaiah is writing, but it would extend well beyond that. It would extend to the nations. And then we talked about the servant's rejection, how uh, Jesus, much like in Isaiah's day, Jesus would walk into a setting in which he was rejected, in which people would not believe his message. And uh, many of his own people did not believe him. At first, during his earthly ministry, his own family didn't believe in him. Uh, His brothers did not believe that he was the Messiah, not until after the resurrection of Jesus. And so he was rejected by his own town, his own townspeople, his own country people. And uh, just the difficulty, the struggle to believe because of our wayward hearts. And he had, he had just ordinary beginnings, um, really nothing royal or noble about his introduction into the world and no special appearance that would draw us to him. And then ultimately just his being rejected, derided, mocked by, by people, uh, the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the word who brought everything into existence, mocked and derided by his own creation. And ultimately, that leads to his suffering. And really, when we get to verse 4, 4, 5, and 6, many of the commentaries that I was looking at suggest that 4, 5, and 6 is like the heart of this passage. Everything before it is kind of moving toward this central theme of the passage, and then everything after it kind of flows out of it. So this is like the, the thematic heart of the passage, the suffering of the servant. And what we read in these three verses is that the servant's suffering is substitutionary. In verse 4, it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. I was reading in uh, the commentary of uh, Alec Motyer and he brought up a very insightful point, and that is that as Jesus is taking up our pain, as he is bearing our suffering, he is doing so without any help from us. Uh, this is not the picture. What he was saying is this is not the picture of two people lifting up a burden and, and sharing a burden together. Uh, this is one person carrying the whole burden. And he says, we were not, the way that this passage portrays us as the sinners is we're completely aloof. We're on the sidelines. We're wandering away. Verse six, we've turned everyone to his own way. We have no interest in our own redemption, our own atonement. We're completely aloof from the whole process. This is all God through his servant accomplishing this on our behalf. And so all of our pain, all of our misery, Everything that the curse of sin brings into the world and brings into our lives, our Savior bore it for us. And we looked at him, and even the people of his day looked at him as if he were the one who was guilty. And he was the one who was being afflicted by God. In other words, many of the people of Jesus' day, probably when they saw that he was arrested and flogged and then put on the cross, their their natural assumption would have been this man was guilty. Or, or even if he's not guilty in, in, a, in a human court of law, he's guilty in the divine court of law. 
and he is under God's punishment. Clearly, this person has done something wrong to suffer this kind of treatment. It's kind of the theology of Job's friends, right? Job goes through all this suffering. What's their theological conclusion? Job, you must have sinned. You must have done something wrong. So God's chastisement is on you. So when they see this happening to Jesus, their natural assumption is he's being smitten by God. He's being afflicted by God. God is punishing him for what he has done. But that's the irony of it, isn't it? Is that he is suffering and he is suffering at the hands of God, but he's not suffering because he's done something wrong. He's suffering substitutionary, isn't he? He's suffering because we've done something wrong. He's standing in our place. I mentioned last week I wanted to bring in some New Testament references. Uh, This is a quote from Isaiah 53 and verse number four. And this is actually in the context of one of Jesus' healings. And Matthew says that this happened to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. And so Matthew, even in the healing ministry of Jesus, sees a fulfillment of Jesus bearing up under the curse of sin that we're all under. And then in verse 5 of Isaiah 53, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now, this is moving deeper into the real core heart problem issue, isn't it? Because verse 4 was talking about our pain and our suffering, our misery in this world, and everybody can attest to that. But verse 5 is getting deeper into the theological core of the problem. That is, why do we have pain and suffering and misery? The reason is because we are rebel sinners before God. And in order for our pain and suffering and misery and the curse of sin on us can really be dealt with, the core problem has to be dealt with, which is our sinfulness. And so God set forth this servant as a substitute for us and his piercing, his, his wounds, his being stricken, it was for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. These are strong words, aren't they? Being pierced, uh, shot through, crushed with our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So you can see the substitution as well as the substitution's effect that, that even though he is not bearing his own sin, he is bearing our sin. And by him bearing our sin, we receive good out of that. We receive healing out of that. We receive peace out of that. It is a substitutionary suffering. First Peter 2.24, Peter quotes from this very verse. And he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus took our place. He died for us. In Hebrews 9, 28, it says, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So he's referring back to the first coming of Jesus and said that in that first coming, he bore our sin. He appeared in that first coming to take away our sins through the sacrifice of himself. And I mentioned Alec Motyer's commentary a few moments ago. He also made some 
insightful comments, I think, about the fact that when Isaiah is writing this for the first time, and people are reading this, or maybe even hearing Isaiah preach this for the first time, they, they can't help but be blown away by the concept of a man taking their sins. Because in the context of Old Testament theology, Levitical theology, what bore their sins was an animal. In fact, the, the whole idea of a human sacrifice was totally contrary to everything that the law of Moses said. And so for them to receive atonement, to receive forgiveness from God, they brought a lamb. And, and now Isaiah is kind of opening up a window for them that maybe for the first time they're, they're seeing what the writer of Hebrews is seeing when the writer of Hebrews acknowledges that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And he's showing that really in order for our sin to really be dealt with, it has to be one of us to really substitute, to take our place, to ransom us. He has to be able to represent us in a way that animals cannot. And so this had to be really kind of shocking in its, in its first reception that a man a servant of God would stand in our place and take our sins upon himself. Verse six says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we can clearly see the substitutionary aspect of these verses that, that God took our sin and laid it on his servant even though his servant did not deserve it. And that brings up another aspect of these verses. And, and that is that um, the servant suffering is from God. So not only is the suffering substitutionary, but this is God. This is God doing this. This is his will. You can tell I really enjoyed Alec Motyer's commentary on this passage, but I wanted to share just a couple of points that he made about these verses. He said about verses four, five, and six about his sufferings. One of the things he says is the servant was alone in his sufferings. He was all alone. And, and that, that's where I mentioned that he didn't have our help in any way. He was completely alone, isolated, smitten by God taking our sins upon himself. He says he acted by means of substitution. He says the servant lifts up and loads our needs onto himself. His sufferings were the penalty which he paid for our transgressions. So it was a substitutionary suffering. And he also says the servant dealt with every aspect of our need. Every aspect of our need. He says, with all the infirmities and the sorrows that blight our lives and the moral and the spiritual wrong and the guilt that alienates God, he says, in respect of the former, he brings us healing and in respect of the latter, he brings us peace. Everything that we needed. And then finally, he says, this work of suffering, it fulfilled the will of God. It fulfilled the will of God. He says, while we were straying, verse six, turning aside to our own way, the servant's willing sin-bearing was being met by the divine action of sin imposition, 
God placing sin upon his servant. In his servant, the Lord was dealing with all that merited his wrath. The servant is the Lamb of God. And so he was substitutionary. He was accomplishing the will of God. And he did it alone in accomplishment of the Father's purpose. So he is the suffering servant. In verses 7 through 9, we see the servant's death. The servant's death. In verses 7, 8, and 9, we see really the manner in which it describes the servant going to his death. And it very closely matches what we read in the Gospels of the Lord Jesus. First of all, he goes quietly to slaughter. He goes quietly to slaughter. Verse 7 says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Just thinking about that, and we know that this is true from the gospel testimony, don't we? That even though he was innocent, he did not fight the trajectory that he was on. He willingly took it upon himself. Uh, We see in Matthew 26, one of those pictures, one of those moments where the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. So in response to their trap, in response to their charges, he calmly, silently went, as Isaiah says, as a lamb to the slaughter. Peter references this in 1 Peter 2.23. He says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He went calmly into the will of God. The servant dies for God's people. Verse 8 says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? Think about the scene in the Gospels where Pilate presents to them an option, right? He says, it's customary at this time for me to release one unto you. I can release Barabbas to you, or I can release this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And they say, give us Barabbas. You take Jesus and crucify him. Even though Pilate said, I I see no charge in this man. I see no, no, no guilt in this man. Nobody protested the fact that he was on his way to death. Nobody stood up and defended him. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. This is the Lord accomplishing the deliverance of his people. He's doing it by means of his suffering servant. Matthew one twenty one, we see the prophecy of Jesus' birth and, and how they are to name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. That's why he's come. He's come to suffer to save God's people. John 10, verses 14 and 15. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I lay and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He, Jesus knew his mission. His mission was not a generic one. His mission was a specific one. He came to deliver, to ransom, to redeem God's people. 
his people that God knew from the, before the foundation of the world, Jesus came to deliver them through his own life. So he dies for God's people. He dies innocent. Verse 9 affirms the innocence of this servant of God. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. It's a direct quotation from Isaiah 53, verse 9. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. No lies, no deceits, no sin. The only reason Pilate did it was to succumb to the, the mob, to, to keep peace and make sure that he didn't cause an uproar that would be reported back to Caesar, and he lost his position. He's just trying to placate the crowd. He saw nothing worthy of guilt in Jesus. And then also the first part of the verse talks about him being assigned a grave with the wicked and buried in a rich man's tomb. We see that fulfilled in Matthew 27, where it says, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Jesus buried in a rich man's tomb, fulfilling Isaiah 53. So we see his death going quietly to slaughter, dying for God's people, dying innocently. And here is one contrast between an animal sacrifice. In verse number seven, Isaiah uses the comparison of a lamb going to slaughter. Who... That lamb, that lamb is often sheared, right, for its wool. And what Isaiah is saying is that that lamb does not know the difference between going for shearing or going for slaughtering. It doesn't know the difference. It is ignorant in that fact. And that's why Jesus' sacrifice is even so much higher than an animal sacrifice, not only because it is a, a human being made in the image of God, standing in the place of other human beings made in the image of God that is so much higher than animals, but also animals cannot willingly offer themselves as a sacrifice, can they? They go ignorantly to slaughter. But Jesus willingly offers himself. He knows what's coming, and yet he goes silently to slaughter. But now we see his triumph. Verses 10 through 12, the servant's triumph. God made this servant a guilt offering on behalf of God's people. Verse 10 says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Now, a lot of people, those that have a hard time with the Bible's theology, especially of substitutionary, vicarious sacrifice. This is one of the things that they have a hard time with. They have a hard time with the understanding of God sacrificing his own son. That this being God's will, sacrificing his own son. You may have even heard like a, an atheist or someone who denies the Bible say, that's, that's nothing more than divine child abuse. But here's what they fail to understand, is that, 
they, they, they treat this on the same level as if it was a human father and human son. You can't, you can't take anything that is divine and match it up exactly with anything that is in creation. They're on different levels. Because a father and a son are two different persons and two completely different essences, two completely different entities. Not so with father, son, and spirit, right? Yes, there are three distinct personages, father, son, and spirit, but yet in a way that is beyond our understanding, our comprehension, they are still one. They're of one essence, of one being, of one nature. And so the son's will is the father's will is the Spirit's will. There is no disharmony, disunity of will between Father, Son, and Spirit. So it's not as if a father is taking his son against his will and giving him up for sacrifice. This is the son saying, willingly, I will go. And the father in complete agreement, in complete harmony, saying, I'm sending you to go. And the Spirit saying in complete harmony, I will go with you and empower you as you go. So this is, you can't look at it in that way. But this is, this is the will of God, isn't it? This is in perfect, the will of the triune God. That he would give himself to the death of the cross as a guilt offering for God's people. And this language comes straight out of Leviticus. That's why it's so shocking. Lamb, bull, bring a goat. And now here is a man who is a guilt offering for God's people. Acts 2, 23 and 24 speaks to the divine initiative in sending Jesus to the cross. He says, this man, speaking of Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This is God's will. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This is God's plan. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Yes, God gave him up to the death of the cross. Yes, but it was in full harmony with the will of Jesus, the suffering servant, but also with the idea that there would be victory. There would be triumph after that suffering. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God made him a guilt offering. But that was not the end of the story, was it? There's triumph. There's victory. And so the servant will see his descendants. How is that possible? How can someone led to slaughter, how can someone who dies, how can he see his descendants after he's already dead? It was the Lord's will to crush him. And even though he makes his life an offering for sin, yet he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So somehow he's led to slaughter, but yet he also has life because he's able to see his descendants, his offspring. And I think you have to take this from a New Testament perspective in a spiritual way, in the sense of his spiritual offspring the children of God, if you will. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He will have prolonging, lengthening, extending of days. How can you say that of someone who's been led to death? 
other than he's been brought back to life. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. That's resurrection, isn't it? After he has suffered, after he has died, after his, he has been pierced for our iniquities, after he has been crushed for our transgressions, he will see the light of life. So Matthew 16, 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, but on the third day be raised to life. He's really teaching them Isaiah 53. I have to go to slaughter. I have to be handed over. I have to die. But then I will see life again. And in the process, he will justify many. He will justify many. He will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. So what is the result? What is the the effect of him bearing our iniquities? The effect is that we are justified, declared righteous in the sight of God. That is the mission. That is what his atoning sacrifice will accomplish. And so we read in the New Testament, he was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. Both the suffering of the servant, the death of the servant, but also the triumphant resurrection and victory of the servant is for our salvation, for our justification. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. What is that righteous act, if not the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which gives life for all people? For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, that's Adam, so also through the obedience of the one man, that is Christ, the many will be made righteous, justified, declared righteous in God's sight. So he will justify many. Peter says, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And then at the end, I think kind of coming around full circle is that the servant receives God's reward. It started with his exalted status. He will be raised up. He will be highly exalted. And now at the end of his mission, he also is exalted and receives the reward of God. So verse 12 says, therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In other words, this is talking about, it really kind of brings back in verses four, five, and six, the redeeming, atoning work of Jesus Christ. And it says, because he did that work and accomplished that mission, the reward of that successful mission is greatness, kingdom, victory. A portion among the great, dividing the spoils with the strong. That's, that's the, the spoils of war after victory. It's an image, isn't it? It's a metaphor for ultimate victory and receiving the reward. Reminds me of the writer of uh, Hebrews when he says, Who for the joy set before him, he endured the shame. He endured the cross, despising the shame. He, and he went for that goal. 
pressing on. And so Luke 22, verse 37 says, it is written, he was numbered with the transgressors. Quote from the last verse of Isaiah 53. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me, Jesus says. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And interestingly enough, that is before Jesus dies. So he knows that the, the text of Isaiah 53 is, is moving forward and moving forward quickly at this point. It's about to reach its culmination and fulfillment. So for this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So Paul says that Jesus' death also results in his life in which he is Lord, in which he is victor overall. And that brings us back to a passage that we looked at last week at the beginning, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. He humbled himself, willingly took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, died as a servant, died on a Roman cross, but then God highly exalted him, exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By the way, Paul is borrowing from Isaiah's language in that passage too. And saying that, What was written of Yahweh, the Lord, in Isaiah is now fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth in his death and resurrection and exaltation. He is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He is the King of all the earth, all the universe, and everyone will at some point have to acknowledge that he is Lord, that he is God. And so exalted status, glory to humiliation and suffering back to glory and exaltation again. What a great savior we have. What a great plan of God. Who could come up with a plan like that? That's one of the testimonies, uh, one of the evidences for the, the Christian faith is the Christian faith is so unlike every other religion in that in every other religion, we've got to save ourselves, right? We've got to, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam, we've got to pursue the path. We've got to keep the five pillars. We've, we've got to, whatever it is, in Christianity, it's God who brings us home. We're, we had nothing to contribute to the process. We were wayward. We were off like sheep, wandering our own way. God brought us home by sending his son, by sending his suffering servant to take our place. All glory be to him. All glory be to Christ.